everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk. Thank you. So yes, we are in the middle of uh, the Alpha course, and for several weeks, we looked at some of the core principles of the Christian faith, and uh, those are the principles that pretty much all Christian denominations agree on, and we're doing this because we believe that every so often, it's important to go back to the basics, and um, We also do it because we wanted to create a space for all of us to ask questions, to explore the Christian faith, and maybe express some of our points of view that may not be the same as the majority's point of view, and to create that space for everyone to feel free to um, say what's in their heart and um, explore the faith. So over the last few weeks, we looked at different questions. Um, Who is Jesus? How can I have faith? Why do we pray? How should we read the Bible? How does God guide us when we make decisions? What about evil? How do we resist evil? We talked about that, and today we're looking at another question that we may have as Christians, and that is why and how we should tell others about Jesus. So let's take a look at our video and we'll have a little talk after that. If you'd like to stand with me, let's read God's word from Matthew 5, 13 to 16. The Bible says you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us how to live as followers of you in a world that needs you desperately. Amen. Let's have a seat. So this portion of scripture, as many of you know, is part of the Sermon on the Mount which is probably the most famous and probably the best known of Jesus' teachings. Jesus appears on the world stage and he inaugurates his arrival with this Magna Carta of the kingdom of God and makes known in this sermon the principles and the, the practices of Christianity, what a person is called to do and what a person is called to be as a follower of Jesus. And throughout scripture, one of the central themes of the Bible from one end to the other is that God called to himself a people to be different, to reflect something of the character and the nature of God. 
of people who love him and who allow his teachings to change them on the inside and whose love and concern for others become their identity in a world that is lost and inclined to evil. So Jesus begins his ministry by teaching what a believer is at the essence of his being and what a believer does, what his influence must be in the world. Because what we are on the inside, it has to be manifested on the outside. And Jesus says that a, a light cannot be turned on and then, and then we put it under a basket or we, we put it under the bed. A light that is not seen, he says, that is not light. A city that is on, on a hilltop cannot not be seen. It is seen from miles away. And he says, in the same way, our lives must be recognized from the distance as distinct from the world. And then Jesus says that a Christian must be like salt that is rubbed in the very fiber of society to stop the degradation and to stop the decay around him. To be that moral disinfectant. That is, that, that is needed in a world that is in constant abandonment of God's moral standards. But as I thought about the Beatitudes, about these principles and practices of Christianity, of the kingdom of God, and what we're called to be and what we're called to do in this world, I thought, aren't Jesus' expectations a little naive? To ask his followers to be meek. Blessed are the meek. To ask his followers to have a pure heart. To ask his followers to mourn and to be poor in spirit and and to be merciful and to turn the other cheek when they are slapped. And at the same time, to expect them to have influence in the world. In a world of power, in a world of wealth, in a world of oppression and hate. Aren't Jesus' expectations a little naive? That a handful of of fishermen and, and, and peasants were going to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. What can a few simple people do who only have one weapon? A clean heart. In a world that is, is, is full of, like a flood of injustice and debauchery around them. What change can they bring? What chance do they have to bring change? And what chance do we have to bring change in the world? And yet, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, believed that the greatest force that was about to be released into the world were his followers armed with this character from the Sermon on the Mount. People who understood that Jesus called them not only to inherit heaven, but also transform the earth and be salt and be light in this world. And for centuries after Jesus to this day, what was and what is the irresistible power of Christianity? Is it its great doctrines? Do people care about our doctrines? It's well-articulated truths? No. But the irresistible power of Christianity was always the love 
and the generosity and the goodness and the mercy of Christ followers. This has always been the strength and the reason for the longevity of Christianity over two millennia in a world that did not agree with them. But could not deny their sacrificial love for the human fellow human beings, even for their enemies, even for their enemies. After 200 years of brutal persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire, at the end of the second century, Tertullian, an early church uh, Christian author, he writes his famous words and he says, we are but of yesterday. And we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. How was it possible for Christianity to flourish in an empire where they were thrown to the lions for sport, tortured and burned alive? Why didn't they die off? Instead, multiply. Eusebius, an early church historian, writes about uh, the famine and the war that came into the city of Caesarea where he was a bishop at that time. And then on top of that, a plague came on the city and, uh, about in the early 300s. And he, he says that the majority of people left the city. But he writes during this plague and he says that all day long, some of them, the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered with, from famine and distributed bread to all of them. And then Eusebius goes on to say that because of their compassion during the plague, the Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips and they praised the God of the Christians. A few decades after Eusebius, the last pagan emperor, Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate, he said that the Christian practice of compassion was one cause behind the transformation of the faith from a small movement on the edge of the empire to cultural ascendancy. And then he writes to one of his pagan priests and he rebukes him and he says, look at the Christians. When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, the Christians, observed this fact and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Sacrificial love and charity were the magnets that attracted the multitudes to Christ. And anywhere, Christianity was a genuine spiritual movement, not a form of religion. Their society changed. The greatest revivals and spiritual renewals were often followed by social movements that reformed society, that blessed the nations where those Revivals took place. Spiritual renewals uh, are usually intimately connected to social reform. That's why until about a century ago, to say Christianity was equivalent to saying civilization. 
No country in the world was called a civilized nation without it being affected by Christianity. Nothing influenced the world toward good and progress more, more than Christianity. When the followers of Jesus take seriously this teaching to be salt and to be light in the world, they change the world around them through deeds worthy of a loving God. And there are so many examples in history of people who allowed their conscience to be awakened by Christ and made a difference in the world around them. And for me, I think one of them, the greatest, is John Wesley. An ordained Anglican pastor. So the people didn't come to church, much like today. So he took the church to the people and he said, the world is my parish. The whole world is my pulpit. So he began to preach in the fields where miners, people from the mines, uh, and farmers and factory workers would come to hear him. And people who would have never darkened the, the, the door of a church were now hearing the good news of Jesus. And as they heard and as they understood the gospel, tears would, would trail down their dirty faces and their lives were changed and a spiritual awakening began to happen. And Wesley uh, Brady, an author in his book, England Before and After Wesley, he speaks about this time and, and he describes the deplorable conditions that were in England before the awakening uh, of Wesley. And he talks about the corruption and the bribery and the high child mortality, obsession with gambling, animal cruelty, uh, the prison conditions were inhumane, immorality, pastors and priests were arrogant and were indifferent. The same sinfulness that was in the government was also in the church. And probably the worst, in 1713, England became the world's leading supplier of slaves. And from his deathbed, six days before he died, John Wesley writes to William Wilberforce, a member of the parliament in, in Britain. And at the time, Wilberforce was engaged in an unsuccessful attempt to pass this, this abolition bill. And Wesley wrote to encourage Wilberforce and, and his campaign to abolish slavery. And he, and he wrote, if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? He says, oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. And there is a movie, some of you may have seen it, called Amazing Grace, about this abolitionist campaign against the slave trade led by William Wilberforce and a small group in the British parliament and how these people who loved God brought dramatic changes in the English society, including the abolition of slavery. And from a country that was the world's leading supplier of slaves, a hundred years later, England champions the abolition of slavery in the entire empire. And uh, Brady says that this radical reversal cannot be explained apart from the neglected and often despised revival started by John Wesley. That politics alone would have never have accomplished it. And after Wesley's revival, many others 
driven by the same love and by the same compassion for the lost that left everything. And they went and they preached um, the gospel and helped change not only the hearts of people, but their social conditions. And they founded schools and they built hospitals and they improved the work conditions of the miners and mines and cared for orphans and for widows and helped those who were addicted and mentally ill. Who was responsible for these social reforms? The communists? I grew up in a communist country. Karl Marx, who called religion the opiate of the people, a crutch for weak people? Did the atheists, were they responsible for these social reforms? Why suddenly such an overflow of human compassion and fight for justice and, and, and interest in social issues? There's only one explanation, a conscience that was awakened by Christ. When the Sermon on the Mount was applied and Christians became light and salt, because when Christ touches our hearts, the things that we could have cared less about before, poverty and corruption and trafficking and racism, they suddenly become our moral obligation to do something about it. The gospel has always released this impulse for social reform, and, and churches cannot be ignorant about social issues. Charles Finney, who led a revival here in America, said that the church of Jesus was organized to be an army of reformers. The essence of Christianity, he says, implies a commitment to do all it can to bring reform in the world. The Christian faith must transform not only the, the, the heart and the personal lives, but the world around us, the neighborhood, our community, our city, and our world. And you know, the 19th century is known as the century of the greatest missionary movements. The revivals in England and in America awakened a new social conscience, and missionaries went into all the world to tell people about Jesus. But in their wooden cases, beside Bibles, they also took medicine. They also took seeds to plant and improve the life conditions of the people they evangelized. They eradicated malaria in some places and leprosy. And they built schools and they built hospitals. All missionaries were, they were not all uh, just preachers. They were, they were doctors and they were engineers and laborers and architects who went to the mission field to change all aspects of people's existence, and missionaries were in constant battle with the big corporations who were interested only in, in, in exploiting the natives, in, in, in exploiting their land for profit. So what are we called to do? Why are we called by Jesus to be light and to be salt in this world, to be involved and to invest in people's lives? There's no other answer except that all people, men, women, children, old people, were made in the image of God, and they matter. Even in their fallen state, they represent the highest value in this universe. They are the masterpieces of God's creation. The Bible says that we were, we were created a little lower than the angels. Now the translation says that we were created a little lower than God. The value of a human being 
is beyond compare. If you took a scale and think about those old-fashioned scales, and on one side of the scale, you put all the natural resources of Saudi Arabia and Russia, and you put all the financial treasury of Switzerland, and you, you take all the industrial robots of Japan, and all the economic power of the United States, and all of them, you put them on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale, you put the soul of the simplest, most ordinary person on earth. The moment that soul touches that scale, the other side of the scale is pulverized into the atmosphere because of the colossal weight that the human soul has compared to anything else on this planet. And here lies the greatness, the greatness of the Christian faith. When we say yes to Jesus, God puts his own nature in us. And when this divine seed enters our hearts, it changes us. And the fruit that we now bear is the fruit of the Spirit of God, which is love, which is love. And we are born of God and we imitate our Father who is in heaven. We no longer can be indifferent about the world around us. If we are indifferent about the world that suffers around us, maybe Jesus never touched our heart. The gospel has to be preceded by good works, and after it's proclaimed, it needs to be followed by good works that change lives and communities and societies. Our good deeds are that bridge that takes us to the world. They are, they are the fruit that we leave behind when we're gone. To this, we are called to be sons and daughters of God who inherited the character of our Father in heaven who is fundamentally good, who so loved this world that he sent his only son to be a missionary here on our earth that anyone who believes in him not perish, but have eternal life. So as followers of Jesus, we're called to love our neighbor across the street and around the world through our good deeds, but also not only through our good deeds, but through telling them about Jesus, inviting them to come to church, the great commissions to go to all the world and tell people and teach them what Jesus taught us. It's valid for all of us. We all have a story to tell how Jesus changed our lives. And the best part is nobody can argue with it. It is your story to tell, but we need to open our mouths and we need to tell others and invite others to come to Jesus. Because we never know what God wants to do with that invitation, with the way you tell your story for that person and for even their family. When I was 13 years old, a classmate asked me to go to church with her. And she just accepted the Lord, and she was hoping that if I go to church uh, with her, maybe I'll experience the same thing. But my father was not a believer, as, as I've shared with you before. And he told me, you can go to church if you want to, but do not come home tonight or at all if you go to church. But when my friend came and she rang the bell, my father forbid me to open the door. 
And I was on this other this side of the door, and she was on the other side of the door. And she would knock, and she would ring, and she would pray. And she, was, she said, Jesus, you said that if we knock, the door will be open to us. So I prayed that you open this door, that Lumi will open this door, and that, that she will come to church. And she did that for half an hour, just knock and ring, knock and ring. And my father went on the balcony of our apartment to smoke. And when he wasn't looking, I I ran out of the door and we both ran to church. And when I came home that night, he was too drunk to remember what he said or even notice that I came home. And I kept going to church. And one day I accepted the Lord. And after I did, I asked my sister, who was older than me, to come to church. And she came and she accepted the Lord. And then a few years later, my parents became believers in the same church that my father threatened to close down, to send the secret police and and close it down. He gave his testimony and he confessed his sin and he became a believer there, got baptized. All because my friend didn't give up, all because she invited me. She reached the whole family, and my sister married a pastor, and she raised her kids in the Lord, and and we raised our kids in the Lord, and the generation continues on this track for the Lord just because she didn't give up. We never know the fruit that what invitation can bring into the kingdom of God. So we show our love for others through our words and through our deeds through our words and through our deeds. We tell them about the love of Jesus. Then we use our talents and we use our gifts and we use our resources that the Lord gave us to practically show God's love to the people. And the question that I would like to leave us with this morning is, what do we want to leave behind when we're gone? What do we want to leave behind when we're gone? Do we want people to say how wealthy we were or how many, whatever we had, cars, houses, designer clothes, whatever? Or do we want them to say, I was sick. And this person visited me, brought me soup. I was lost and she prayed for me. I was in the gutter morally and she propped me up and prayed for me so now I can walk with my head up. I, I was a foreigner in this country, and, 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 and somebody spoke for me because I didn't know English, and I was taking advantage of agencies and, 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 and people, and they advocated for me. There are as many needs as the people around us. And Jesus says, when you did any of those things for the least of these You did them to me. So my prayer is that the Lord will help us be light and salt in this world. Whatever he put us, with whatever we have, the gifts that we have. So when he returns and he comes on the clouds of glory, for him to say, well done, well done church, well done you, 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 everyone. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now come and inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. I would like us to go into, uh, into ministry time.
And I would like us to look into our hearts and to ask the Lord, how can I help? I can't do everything. I cannot do radical changes maybe in the world as others have done, but I can do something. I can do something where I can show the love of God who loved me. So I would like us to, to pray and to, and, and to think of things that we can do. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.